Good morning. Welcome, everybody. I hope you all are having a good morning so far. I'm going to open up with the scripture reading from um, Exodus 29, um, no, Exodus 12, 29 through 42. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all of his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt, because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go, worship the Lord, as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds, as you asked, and leave, and also bless me. Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country, for they said, we're all going to die. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their clothes on their shoulders. The Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. In this way, they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites traveled from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 abled-bodied men on foot, besides their families. A mixed crowd also went up with them, along with a huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. The people baked the dough as they had brought out of Egypt into unleavened loaves, since it had no yeast. For when they were driven out of Egypt, they could not delay and had not prepared provisions for themselves. The time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, on that same day, all the Lord's military divisions went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of vigil in honor of the Lord, because he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. This same night is in honor of the Lord, a night vigil for all the Israelites throughout their generations. So if you want to follow along, we're in Exodus chapter 12. You should have a Bible in front front pew. If you don't have a Bible, you have one now. All right. Um, So would you say that we need encouragement in hard times? Yeah? Yeah, I would say that. I'd say we need some encouragement in hard times. It's one of the reasons that we meet on Sunday mornings, right? When you're driving here, when I'm driving here, I am looking for a sense of encouragement because sometimes a week has been hard. Yeah? One of the ways that we get encouragement on Sunday mornings is that we are commemorating our salvation. We're remembering what the Lord has done. And by remembering what the Lord has done for us, we are encouraged and strengthened. And the reality is we need to commemorate our salvation consistently to combat the onslaught of troubles in this life. Yeah? Ultimately, this passage is about what's called the Passover. And the whole chapter is about commemorating what the Lord had done to free his people and how important that was. 
is still important today. So let's just, uh, we're going to ask the Lord to help us and see exactly how can we commemorate what he has done for us. Lord, would you please speak to us through your word? Lord, we are hungry, so would you feed us? We are tired, so would you strengthen us? Some of us are discouraged, so would you encourage us? Do all these things through the power of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to get some context. Context is? Context is king. All right, there you go. All right, context is king. So you want to read the Bible, you're like, what's going on, right? Especially in the Old Testament. You read a little piece, and you're like, that's an interesting story. What? All right, so the context is this. In Exodus 11, Moses foretold the death of the firstborn of Egypt. The, the interesting thing is that if you recount the story, there was this, this succession of, Pharaoh, of Moses saying, Pharaoh, you need to let God's people go. And he says, no. And then there's a plague. And this happens repeatedly over and over and over again for nine times. And this last one is the last plague that the Lord is going to send. So in Exodus eleven four, 4, it says, So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt, and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who is at the grindstones, as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a great cry of anguish throughout all the land of Egypt, such as never was before or ever will be again. But against all the Israelites, whether people or animals, not even a dog will snarl, so that you may know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And so into the next chapter, in, in Exodus chapter 12, the, the whole chapter is about the preparation for that night, which came to be called Passover. Now, Passover is a sacred observance in Judaism that commemorates the 10th plague in the book of Exodus, when God pun punishes Egypt by killing all the firstborn, but passes over the firstborn of Israel, resulting in Israel's deliverance. Now, what's interesting, if you pay attention to the story, God gives them a particular sign that they should do to indicate that they were identified with him. On that night of the Passover, they were supposed to get a lamb and to, and to kill it. And what they were supposed to do with the blood is they were supposed to put the blood over the doorposts of their house. Exodus 12, 13, it says, The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, this is God speaking, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to, to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, this is an example of what the Bible calls atonement. All right, so what is atonement? Atonement is this idea of covering over sin. Now, in the Bible, we can get that atonement is, is I'm, I'm going to do a, a college word, right, college phrase. Oh, y'all gonna repeat it after me. Say, penal. Penal as a penalty. Penal. penal. Substitutionary. Substitutionary. Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Okay. So, penal, the penalty that there is a punishment and consequence for sin. Yeah, and we all know this. When somebody does something crazy, everybody says they need to get punished. They, we need to have some justice up in here. And what they mean is I get justice when the perpetrator gets sentenced at the trial and has to live out their sentence. 
right? There's a penalty, a, a consequence for sin. But what God has done in His grace, even though there is a penalty and a consequence for sin, God gives a substitute, someone or something to stand in place. So the substitutionary sacrifices is offered in your place for the consequence of sin. I remember when I, uh, I, I taught a summer camp for young kids and I was trying to explain penal substitutionary atonement. Yeah, that was real easy, right? And, but what I said, I said, imagine that you got in trouble. And they're like, yeah, I can imagine that. <laughs> and imagine, you know, your brother or sister, they were innocent, but they loved you a lot. And they was like, yo, let me get that spanking instead of you. And they were like, ha, ha, ha. They would never do that. I'm like, y'all get the weight of it. You get the weight of this penal substitutionary atonement. Now, here's the question you need to ask yourselves. If you're reading the book of Exodus, it seems like the ones who are about to get judgment is the Egyptians. So why in the world did the Israelites need atonement? Yeah, the bad guy is clear in the book, yeah? It's Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Yet, yet, this is indicating that even the Israelites need some atonement. Here's an interesting thing. They were not only the ones who were suffering, but they were sinners as well. As the story plays out throughout the Old Testament, you will see Israel doing some of the exact same things as the Egyptians. Worshiping other gods, oppressing the poor. It gets to the point where it's so crazy, they begin to sacrifice their children to foreign gods. The exact thing that was happening to them. See, this is, this is something that you need to understand about the identity of everyone you meet. Every single person you meet is a combination of a sufferer and a sinner. Okay? Every person you meet is a combination of a sufferer and a sinner. What this means is that nobody is only a victim, and nobody is only a victimizer. Yeah? So, so listen, when, when we see people who are suffering and we look at them as only victims, we take away their agency. It makes them feel powerless. But when we see somebody who has committed crimes and we only see their sin, you don't understand how much like you they are, right? So, so it's interesting that, that when we understand this combination, when we see somebody who is a victim, we need to understand that, that they're not only a victim, they have dignity to agency. And when we see somebody who is a sinner, understand they're not only a sinner, they have had suffering too. And so even though the Israelites were sinners, God had compassion on them and provided atonement. Now, in verse 29, we see that God punishes the unrepentant. It says, Now at midnight the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock. Now, if y'all remember the passage, it was 400 years of oppression, and they had nine specific times where they could repent. Yeah? So, so, so it's not like God was like just murking people. He was like, listen, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. 
But after a while, when their ear was deaf and they did not want to listen to the Lord, God brings judgment. And I want you, I want to, I want you to hear something that, that might sound weird. As I've experienced more of life, as I have been in situations where I've observed people's suffering, God's judgment is becoming more and more of a good thing to me. Because there's some stuff that makes me angry. And if you see the world, if you see the pain, and if you see the oppression that exists in this world, there should be some stuff that makes you angry too. So God sees pain, but he doesn't just see pain. He brings judgment. In the book of Nahum, the book you read all the time, just playing. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. In the Psalms, there's this one passage that says, The Lord fills indignation every day. When I see what goes on in the lives of people that I know, I am thankful that the Lord is not stoic. I am thankful that he isn't just shrugging his shoulders, but that when he sees sin, he is furiously angry, which means he has a deep care and a deep compassion. This reminds us that that no one in the end fools God. No one in the end gets away with it, if you will. He keeps account and will bring judgment. And I'm sure Pharaoh was like, ah, well, whatever. It's whatever. I'm just doing what I'm going to do. But at this moment, at this moment, he realized that God keeps account. Now, what's interesting, if you go on to verse 30, we, we get this idea that God's people must be prepared for God's deliverance. Verse 30, during the night, Pharaoh got up. He, along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get out immediately from my people, both you and the Israelites, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds as you've asked. Leave and also bless me. Now you catch that. Anyway. Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them away quickly out of the country. They said, we are all going to die. And then the, the passage begins to recount how they couldn't even pack up their bread right, all right? They couldn't let their bread rise. They had to pick up, pick up their bowls and put them on the shoulders. It's interesting that in this passage, God suddenly delivered his people. And what I've often thought about this week is, is hopefully they weren't too attached to Egypt, right? Hopefully they weren't too attached to the land where they were in oppression. What's interesting is that Christ in the New Testament promises a sudden deliverance for his people. Out of his mouth in Matthew 24, he says, Therefore be alert, since you do not know the day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you also are to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, one, are we ready? And have we been too attached to Egypt? 
Listen, listen, the world we live in, if we open our eyes and if we open our ears, we hear of stuff that is distressing. And in our hearts, we should be longing for this final deliverance that is to come. But if we are too attached to the things of this world, we will not be ready. Y'all remember Y2K? Some of y'all too young. Okay, listen. Y2K is when it turned 2000, everybody thought the world was going to end. All right, y'all, I was like nine at that point, okay? And I remember going to the grocery store that whole, in 1999, the whole year, and all I could see was them tabloids right in my face, and I'm like, the world going to end. Now listen, after a year of seeing that, I was like, doggone, this is, I'm, it's gone. I don't know what's going to happen. The world is about to end. I don't know what that means, but I'm scared. And in the back of my mind, I was like, but I want to do this and this and this and this. I ain't even lived my full life yet. I'm like, I don't want to die. Now listen, at, at 12.01, I was scared, but I was like, oh, it's, it's okay. We still here. We still here. Now, what's interesting is a lot of times when we think about the second coming of the Lord, we don't get excited. We go, but what about the, what if I need to, what's the thing I, you see what I'm saying? We must be attached to the things eternal and not overly attached to what belongs to this age. All right, I'm going to move on. God delivers and provides for his people. Look at verse 35. The Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver, gold items, and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. And, the way they pl- and that way they plundered the Egyptians. So we see that God delivers and provides for his people in his way, not ours. You'd imagine there would be like this huge war, right? And maybe if they were like super undermatched, the Lord was going to do work. But instead, they obeyed God and let God sort out the details. And the problems of this world, listen, one of the verses I want you to remember is is Romans 12, 19. It says, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. God's wrath is good news there, right? Leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. So we don't take matters into our own hands and take matters into our own devices or try to make up an awesome plan. We obey the word of the Lord and we say, Lord, how you deal with it is up to you. But I trust you that you will deal with it rightly. Now, as they're leaving in verse 38, it says a mixed crowd also went up with them along with huge numbers of livestock, both flocks and herds. This teaches us that anyone can be included in God's people. Think about that. If you read, so much of the New Testament is about this ethnic identity of Israel. But in the moment of salvation, in the moment of escape, anybody could have came. Didn't matter if you have ethnic Israel or not. If you see deliverance and you want in, you can get in. It don't matter who your mama was. You can get in. What's interesting is that the blessings of God are observable. I imagine there's people who weren't ethnic Israelites, and they're like, man, God seemed like he, he about that life. He really is taking care of people. Can I get in with that, right? Sometimes the blessing of God comes in the form of favor and protection, yeah? There have been times in my life where I have felt the Lord's favor and protection, and people who weren't even Christians could observe it. And I can say, you can get on this too, there are times when, when sometimes the blessing of God comes when there is great spiritual fruit in the midst of suffering. Have you ever seen somebody's demeanor that is full of joy, yet their life circumstances is one of suffering? And you go, what is going on? Can I get some of that? 
How are you facing these obstacles with joy? Beloved, that's the blessing of God. Either way, the blessings of God are observable. And that, and anyone who sees the blessings of God can be included in the people of God. Not only ethnic Israel. See, the kingdom of God is open to all who want to be included in God's people. What's interesting is this picture of salvation is actually not individualistic. When they want to get saved, when they want to have the deliverance, they go to God's people. And when you are with God's people, you are saved. When you come to his people, you are in the community that God protects, that God blesses, that God sets apart, and that God ultimately delivers. So, so listen, it does not matter where you come from, what your background is, but here's the deal. It doesn't matter where you come from, but your fundamental allegiance must change. In that same chapter, the last part of Exodus 12, it's talking about when people come with you and they celebrate the Passover, you need to make sure that they are with the covenant. You need to make sure that they observe the laws that we do. Anybody can come, but the allegiance must go from whatever it was to the God of Israel. It doesn't matter where you come from, but your affection and your conduct must conform to the covenant. This puts a little nuance on the, on the phrase, all are welcome. Yeah? What do you mean all are welcome? Everybody is welcome to get in on this agreement. Everybody is welcome to submit to Jesus. Everybody is welcome to have their sins forgiven. Everybody is welcome to reform their life in the way of Jesus. It doesn't matter where you come from. But when you come to Jesus, he transforms you. Everybody is welcome, but it's under his terms and his covenant. Now listen, we get to verse 42, the last verse in this passage, it says, we get this idea that we ought to commemorate the deliverance of the Lord. Verse 42, it was a night of vigil in honor of the Lord because he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. This same night is in honor of the Lord, a night vigil for all the Israelites throughout their generations. So he says, so as it happens, both before and after Moses, like, y'all need to remember this. And the way y'all going to remember this is that y'all going to have a special meal once a year called the Passover. And every single year, y'all going to eat this special meal. And everybody says, why are you going to eat that meal? Because we have to remember the Lord's deliverance. It had this discipleship purpose. In Exodus 12, 26, it says, when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? You are to reply, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and he spared our homes. Listen, it, it was this, this former of their identity. Who are you? You are part of the group of people that the Lord delivered on that night. How do you know? Every year we eat this meal and we recount this story. It formed the identity of the people of Israel. But here's the deal. There is a night that we were delivered. It was not that night. The night that Christ celebrated the Passover. Y'all remember this? When Christ celebrated the Passover is the very same night that he instituted a communion. It's the very same night that his sufferings began. It's the very same night that had him end up on a cross dying for our sins. When, when is our night of deliverance? It happened 2,000 years ago when Christ died 
on the cross. Listen, the fact that he said this and, and instituted that night on the Passover is not an accident. He was illustrating that he himself is the fulfillment of the Passover. Paul straight up says Christ is the Passover lamb. That's not confusing, right? He just straight up says it. What does that mean? What does that mean? Like the Israelites, we are both this mix of sinners and sufferers. And God sees the suffering that sin causes, but he sees the fact that we have all sinned. Every single one of us, to one degree or another, is guilty. Yet God provides a penal substitutionary sacrifice through Christ. In Isaiah, it says, yet he, Jesus, himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Listen, the, the, the entrance into the covenant is, is an acknowledgement of your own guilt. Yeah? That wrath that's good news when you look at the suffering of others is bad news when you look at your own sins. But God, who loves you dearly, has provided an atoning sacrifice for you in the death of Christ Jesus. And the New Testament blatantly says... The blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, covers our sins. It's straight up hearkening back to what happened on the Passover. Listen, if judgment was coming and I didn't have the blood, I'd be judged. If judgment was coming and I didn't have an atonement, I'd be judged. But beloved, God loves you so much that he provided Christ Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for your sins. So if you're, if you're here and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, trust in Christ to be saved from the just judgment of God. He has provided an atonement for you. Not only that, Jesus' salvation is the assurance of our future victory. Because the lamb has been slain for us, death does not have the final word. Yeah? Because the lamb has been slain. I was reading something the other day. It says, well, if Jesus was slain, why we got to die? He said, for the Christian, death is the entrance into your victory. For the Christian, death is the entrance into your rest. It's not punishment. If you trust in Christ Jesus. Now, what's interesting is this whole passage in Exodus 12 is about this meal that the Israelites were supposed to have so that they would remember the night of their deliverance. Y'all think we got something like that? Communion, the Lord's Supper, is the commemoration of the Lord's deliverance. Yeah? The, 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 the bread broken represents Christ's body, which is broken for us. The cup represents his blood that was spilled for us. Listen, the Lord's Supper is a beautiful commemoration and one that was given by Christ himself. 
Listen, Christ commanded all Christians to eat bread and drink from the cup in thankful remembrance of him. In that, we have this visible picture of the gospel. God's word saves, yes? In the Lord's Supper, we have God's word displayed in front of us. Not only does it commemorate, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One of my favorite questions is when somebody says, Why do y'all do communion every week? Well, doggone it, I want to proclaim the Lord's death. I'm going to proclaim it as much as I can through all the means that he has given me. Because listen, Romans 1, 16, it says, For the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Beloved, when we take part in this meal, we are saying that we are saved because of the broken body and spilled blood of Christ Jesus. Beloved, we get to proclaim the gospel every week together as we remember what Christ has done. Not only does it commemorate, not, not only does it strengthen, uh, excuse me, not only does it proclaim, it actually strengthens. You know, there's this catechism. Yeah, well, I realize I don't know if I know what catechism is. A catechism is something that teaches you a question and answer format. Okay, that's what it is. But there's this, there's this document, and it's talking about the Lord's Supper, and it says, For my soul is no less assuredly fed, stop when I take communion, is no less assuredly fed to everlasting life with his body, which was crucified for me, and his his blood which was shed for me, then I receive and taste by the mouth of my body the bread and the cup, the signs of the body and the blood of the Lord. He's saying, I am specifically encouraged as I take this meal because I am remembering the night of my deliverance. He gets even more specific. He says, what is it? What does it mean to eat the body of Christ? What does it mean? He says, it's not only to embrace by an assured confidence of the mind, the whole passion, passion is his death, the whole passion and death of Christ, and to obtain forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, but also by the Holy Spirit who dwells in both Christ and us, we are united to his body. That though he be in heaven and we on earth, yet nevertheless we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Saying that the Spirit uses the supper to unite you more and more to Jesus. So not only does it commemorate, not only does it proclaim, not only does it strengthen, it anticipates. On the night that he was, cru- that he was about to be crucified, he looked at his disciples and he said, I want to eat this meal. He says, he says, I was zealous. I was excited to eat this meal with you. And we will not eat again until we eat together in my kingdom. So, 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 so we're not only remembering something that happened, we're also anticipating something that will happen. That when we take bread and and when we take of the cup, it anticipates the day when we will eat and drink with Christ in his Father's kingdom. It's a lot compacted into that. But it is a meal of encouragement. Now, I want to reply to some objections. Sometimes when, when I do communion, 
when we do communion, I know some, some of y'all in the back of y'all head is thinking over your week, and you're like, did I sin a lot last week? If I, did I sin too much to not take communion? I know some of y'all thinking that, because what y'all been taught, did I sin too much this week? Listen, listen, listen. Christ came to save who? Sinners. Yeah, Yo, the prerequisite is that you sinned. <laughs> So the question is not, did I sin too much? The question is, do I need the gospel? What's the answer to that? Yes. Were you really bad last week? Probably. I don't know. But you need Jesus. You need to be assured that he loves you. You need to be reminded that though you are sinful, Christ still died for you. So some of my people say, well, I'm too sinful. Well, good. Christ died for sinners. Well, some might say, I don't see the benefit. Well, maybe you don't, but Jesus said to do it. I don't see the benefit of everything Jesus said to do. But he the Lord, right? Now, listen, I don't know about you. Sometimes I eat a meal and it was exquisite. Sometimes I ate a meal and it was all right. All right, but here's the deal. Every time I ate a meal, it did strengthen me, whether I felt it or not, okay? So, yeah, you might not be on cloud nine. But, but listen, this is the, 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 one of the church fathers just says this is the medicine of immortality. That we need this, this medicine because of our sin has made us sick. Then some of you might think about that scripture that says, what, what about taking communion unworthily? Now, context is, context is, let me tell you what was happening, and I'm going to ask you if you think you're doing that. What was going down in that church was that they was having communion, but some people was really rich, all right? They didn't have to work a lot. So they was getting, like, drunk and stuff before the other people uh, got home from work. And when they got home, they found that people was drunk and that there wasn't enough food left. Now, listen, that's, that's what the Bible says to, to, to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. Did y'all do that? I don't think you did, right? Right? <laughs> I don't think you did that, right? Now, if we, if y'all did that, we would have a separate conversation. But like, that's, that's not what. That's not That's that's not what's going down. But that we're realizing that when we are taking the Lord's supper, that Christ is uniting us to Himself and uniting us to one another. Now, what could be eating and drinking in an unworthy ma- manner is if you have a grudge against your brother and sister. That's more akin to what's going on. Not if you sinned, but if you sit in this room and you're like, I don't like that person. All right, well, Jesus said, before you come to the altar, what? <laughs> Go reconcile. All right. Now, I have a lot of people ask uh, this question, and I'm not mad at this question. It's a good question. The question is, do we do altar calls? Or why don't we? Or what? Listen, every time that we do the Lord's Supper, I make a disclaimer. I say, if you have not been united to Christ, if you have not been baptized into Christ, this is not for you. But the thing about it, you can get in on it. I remember um, a couple of years back, we were, we, we, I've always made that disclaimer, and a couple of years back, there was this young man that was coming to church here, and he abstained because he knew he wasn't ready. He abstained. So every time we took communion, you know, he'd be reverent, he'd bow his head, he'd do whatever he wanted to do. But then one Sunday, somebody came up to me. They said, did you see him? I said, what'd he do? He said, he took the Lord's Supper. I said, he did. And so I said, hey, man, let's hang out. And I said, why did you do that? He said, because I believe. Yeah, he, he saw that moment as a moment of confessing his belief in Christ. And so we did discipleship. We went through some doctrine, and we baptized that man. 
because he said he believed, but he understood the weight and the significance because we said that every single week. Beloved, when you are going to partake of the Lord's Supper, it's not because you think it's interesting or because somebody else is doing it. It's because you have been united to Christ and you see the significance of it. And if you don't see the significance of it, I'd say do not do it, but let's have a conversation because we can understand the significance of this gospel and you can have that salvation. So y'all, let's, let's always commemorate this salvation that we have found in Christ that recounts the fact that we have been delivered and that we will experience ultimate deliverance. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you have given us your word and that you have provided for us. Lord God, that you want to assure us of your goodness and kindness to us in various ways. And Lord, I want to receive that goodness and kindness in all the ways that you would give it. So Lord, let us be people that always remember that night of our salvation, that night where you prayed and you and you wept, and the scripture says that you sweated great drops of blood. That night where you said, not my will, but your will be done. Let us always remember that and celebrate it. In Jesus' name, amen.